Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Tonight, we take a look at the growing issue of Idaho's affordable housing shortage, the steps that some Idahoans are taking to avoid homelessness, and what role the state could play. We'll also take a look back at Tuesday's Attorney General debate and the rest of the primary field heading into this May election. I'm Logan Finney, filling in for Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, producer Ruth Brown takes a look at Idaho's affordable housing shortage and sits down with Madeline Beck of Boise State Public Radio to discuss recent reporting on people forced to camp on public lands. Then later in the show, Stephanie Witt and Jacqueline Kettler of Boise State University join me to discuss Tuesday night's Republican Attorney General debate and the upcoming primary election. But first, on Monday, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit reinstated a lawsuit previously dismissed by a federal judge in Boise, revolving around accusations against a rural Idaho dairy. The plaintiffs in the case, six Mexican veterinarians, say they were repeatedly threatened by Idaho's Funk Dairy after they were recruited to work under the TN visa program. Appellate judges note the dairy conceded all plaintiffs believed their ability to remain lawfully in the U.S. depended on their continued employment at that dairy. The lawsuit now moves forward to court. On Thursday, the American Lung Association found in its 2022 State of the Air report that the Boise area experienced a higher number of unhealthy days in 2018 to 2020 compared to the prior years and experienced worse short-term and year-round particle pollution. Boise's short-term particle pollution got worse in this year's report, meaning the area saw more unhealthy days this year. The Boise area ties for 24th worst for short-term particle pollution. In housing news, a report released Thursday from the National Low Income Housing Coalition and the Idaho Asset Building Network found that for every 100 households with extremely low incomes, Idaho has just 42 affordable and available rental homes. That report also found that two out of three economically modest households in the state are paying more than they can afford for a rental. Over the summer, producer Ruth Brown interviewed Twin Falls Housing Authority Executive Director Sunny Shaw about what she thinks the state could do to improve access to affordable housing. This summer, I sat down with Twin Falls Housing Authority Executive Director Sunny Shaw to talk about who she helps and some of the misconceptions around the type of clients who need housing assistance. When we met outside of some of the disabled and family housing provided to Idahoans in the Twin Falls area, we talked about struggles and possible solutions. Of all of the households we serve, 81% are elderly or disabled. That's a big misconception because a lot of people think that if they're on a subsidized housing program that they are freeloaders, right? Well, 81% are elderly or disabled. And then the other interesting data point in that survey that I did this morning is that of those able-bodied individuals, 91% are working. So that is a huge misconception in regards to housing authority programs across the country. The folks aren't freeloaders. They're just simply either trying to live on social security or disability. We know that amount is about $750 to $1,200. So finding an apartment or home on that rent is next to impossible because you're gonna have to make some really hard choices. Uh, or those individuals who are working, sometimes they're underemployed. They're not getting 40 hours a week or they're working at a wage that just does not afford them housing on their own. 
Shaw said Idahoans need to understand the gravity of the decisions families face if they can't find affordable housing. We do have households who are having to decide, do I get medicine or do I get food? Or do I take the risk of being two months late on my rent and hope my landlord will work with me? Those choices are being made every day. Um, and I'm grateful that I'm not in that situation. I have been in that situation before, so I think it gives me a level of empathy. But we need to, we need to tug at that empathy muscle and begin to understand that we have neighbors, we have friends, we have family who are going through this and making tough decisions. And maybe they're not sharing it with you. Doesn't mean it's not happening. There are issues that Shaw believes the state could address, but haven't yet. Predominantly, the state has left the Housing Trust Fund unfunded for 30 years. The Housing Trust Fund was passed by the Idaho legislature in 1992. At that time, they couldn't agree on how to fund it. So they decided, well, we'll create it, we'll get it in statute, and then we're gonna kick that can down the road. And since then, no one has wanted to touch it because really it comes back to appropriation and where do you pull the money? And sometimes that's in regards to taxes. So most elected officials do not want to talk about taxes if they don't have to. It's never been funded. It's a shame because the trust housing trust fund is used in states all across the country to improve housing. So what could happen is if it were funded, then there could be monies made available for low interest loans or bonds or even directly um, targeting programs that could go to municipalities and to housing authorities to increase the housing stock or to provide affordable options for renting. And so because we've never looked into doing that, we rely on the federal government to subsidize all of our housing programs in Idaho. And the state isn't taking responsibility for affordable housing in Idaho. And it goes back to at some point, even in Idaho, we have to realize housing is infrastructure and we have to start funding that so we can create more affordable housing. Industry, um, you know, people used to follow industry. Uh, people used to move to where there were jobs. Now what's happening is the trend. Industry is following people. Well, people can't be in a space if they can't afford to live. And so if we want industry in our state, then we have to have affordable housing. Without affordable housing, Idahoans in rural areas still face the possibility of homelessness. In rural areas, it may not look the same as homelessness in downtown Boise or urban areas. So you're going to see homelessness not so much in people who are at the underpass or at the off-ramp. You're going to see homelessness in um, a, a parent, mother and father who have a couple of generations living with them. You know, a, a son and a daughter and their children living with them. That's what we see homelessness as. Now, is that appropriate just because it's a different kind of homelessness than in a more urban area? No. Those strains are still on those families and those difficult decisions are still being made by that family. So it does look a little bit different um, in rural Idaho, but that doesn't mean it's non-existent. It is there. Even if you've never struggled with housing insecurity, Shaw argued that we should all be invested in finding affordable homes for everyone. I am responsible for my community and I am responsible for the families in my community. Um, if we could all just get to where we have a belief that our purpose is bigger than us. The Idaho Housing Trust Fund remains unfunded after the 2022 legislative session following Idaho Reports' interview with Shaw. 
On a related note, Ruth sat down with Madeline Beck of Boise State Public Radio Friday morning to discuss a number of people living on public lands and how the lack of affordable housing has exacerbated that problem. Madeline, you recently published a story regarding the housing crisis and individuals who have been forced to uh, camp on public lands. 63% of Idaho is made up of federal lands. Can you walk me through what you found in your investigation? Yeah, absolutely. So what I found was there is an extremely steep spike in people moving to live on public lands. Uh, one of the officers and confirmed by other officers said around this area especially, they've seen a increase of tenfold of people living out there. Um, so that is extremely concerning because there aren't many resources out there and there's also you know, a lot of areas where these people are living, there is no infrastructure. So what do you do for public services or even removing waste? Um, so yeah, that's, that's primarily what I found. Uh, and generally, the biggest concern among that issue is that the people moving out to public lands are gainfully employed, uh, which is unlike what we've seen before, where, you know, it was people who might be down on their luck or even people who just chose to live uh, now it is entire families that are moving onto public lands out of necessity because they cannot afford to live in town anymore. Can you talk to me about the legality of that? Can you get evicted from the forest? <laughs> Absolutely. So most federal public lands have a date, um, amount of time that you can stay there. Uh, and a lot of them are, are 14 days. And that is for areas that aren't necessarily camping locations, like built out with porta potties and things like that. These are locations that are just out there on public lands, often called dispersed campgrounds. These areas, that's the limit. And if you overstay it, then you can be evicted, you can be fined. Um, one man recently up at Bridger Teton, he was fined $2,000 and evicted for three years from the National Forest there. So this is not a new phenomenon. Uh, can you talk to me about how it's evolved? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously moving out on to live on the land is not anything new. It's what settlers did when they moved out west, right? But then we've even experimented in the past in the early 90s on the Forest Service land in Oregon. They set up a, an encampment for homeless people to basically camp in the woods with services. This is not new. Uh, even after the 2008 housing crisis, uh, they saw a spike in people moving out to public lands then. Um, so yeah, we've seen ebbs and flows of people moving out to public lands. And even with that research from Forest Service researchers have found there's a wide variety of people that are moving out there. So that includes, you know, retirees who might be in RVs who are living randomly on public lands moving around uh, perfectly legally within the 14-day limits. Uh, you also have outlaws, a very small but constant number of people who do not want to be caught or brought in. Um, or, you know, seasonal laborers. Uh, you have students, you have people who are raft guides living on these public lands. So the Bureau of Land Management addressed there are some issues with folks living in these uh, rural areas, human waste, trash. Uh, what are some of the concerns around that? Well, I mean, a lot of these public lands agencies feel like they're in a really difficult place because they are charged with 
upholding certain requirements on these public lands, making sure people can recreate, but also protecting the public lands. And so if you have someone living in an area for too long, you have things like soil compaction. You have things like human waste, which are a really big problem, and it's really challenging to clean that up. Uh, you have actual massive amounts of garbage uh, and or trailers trying to get a trailer out of the woods that's been rotting there and its wheels no longer turn you know that costs a lot of money and it ultimately costs money for those federal agencies and the taxpayer um, so they're trying to uphold what they're supposed to do in protecting the lands and protecting it for those who want to recreate but they also are human and they see these people out there in really dire straits and so trying to balance those two issues are really challenging right now. What is the plan moving forward? The housing crisis arguably is only getting worse. Um, the lack of affordable housing is a consistent problem in Idaho. I guess, does the Forest Service, BLM, do they have a plan moving forward? Well, they said that generally they want to work with social service agencies or anyone who wants to partner with them in any part of the state in Idaho. Um, there are other agencies out there like around Bridger Teton who've specifically said, that's not our job. Our job is to protect the land. It's not to find people housing. So different people see this in different ways. Um, but at least around Idaho, uh, the BLM state chief ranger, Becky Andrews, has said she wants to partner with organizations. She wants to get people help. She does believe it's an ebb and a flow. She does believe that you know it will reduce, but other people don't see it that clear cut. They don't see this as just a short-term problem. It could be a longer-term problem. Madeline Beck, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Let's take a look back at this week's attorney general debate for Republican candidates in the primary election. That debate aired here on Idaho Public Television and was moderated by Melissa Devlin. Here's some of what the candidates had to say. The reason I entered this race is because Idaho's in trouble. I am a litigator. I'm a full-time litigator. I've done that for 15 years. I grew my law firm from zero to, well, zero, me, a solo attorney, to six attorneys operating in three states. I've been to the state Supreme Court six times. And when you're a land use attorney, you need to remember Idaho is a common law state. So we go all the way back in the, in the English common law in Idaho to enforce our laws. And so when I saw what was happening with the COVID lockdowns and what the attorney general was not doing, I decided to get in the race. I thought, yep, yeah, I can do that job. Idaho needs a fighter. I'm a fighter. Let's go. As I watch what happened over the last couple of years when we had an attorney general who was unwilling to stand up to the governor, who just became a yes man to the governor, when the governor was doing things that were probably unconstitutional or were outside the law, and instead was providing legal advice to the governor that he could interpret the law in a way that was outside of what the statute said, I thought the people of Idaho needed an attorney general that would stand up for them. Because the difference between me and the current attorney general is that the current attorney general thinks that his number one responsibility is to justify legally whatever the governor wants to do. I don't think you should ever justify what the governor wants to do. You need to tell the governor what the law is. You need to tell the legislature what the law is. You need to tell the executive agencies what the law is. This is an office of 120 lawyers, 230 people. This isn't six people. It's not just a small staff. This is a, the most significant and largest law office in the state. The claim that we lose most of our cases is nonsense. 
absolute nonsense. We win most of the cases that we have. I have some clients that don't want to receive good legal advice, and they choose not to, and it costs the state dearly. Now, we try and help them to improve their legislation, but some of them just simply are unwilling to accept good legal advice. That's not my choice. That's their choice. Some of them have a vision of what the state is and has and can do, which is not correct. On one occasion, I had, uh, I had a, a legislator who said, we can do anything we want because we're the Idaho legislature. And the answer is, no, you can't. You're limited by the Constitution. That's a critical factor. Very upset with me over it. But the answer is, you can't do whatever you want. You have to comply with the Constitution. You can find that full debate online at idahoptv.org elections, where you'll also find the schedule of our upcoming debates. Republican Candidates for Superintendent of Public Instruction airs Monday, April 25th at 8 p.m., and Republican Candidates for Secretary of State airs Tuesday, April 26th at 8 p.m. Idaho's primary election is set for Tuesday, May 17th. Joining me now at the Pundit's Table are Stephanie Witt and Jacqueline Kettler of Boise State University to review this week's debate and the upcoming primary. Thanks for joining me. Happy to be here. Glad to be here. Um, so I want to start with you, Stephanie. Uh, Attorney General Wasden has been in an office for a long time, and the position is typically not one that draws a lot of attention. It used to be more like the controller or treasurer's debate that wasn't challenged too much. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we've seen attorney attorneys general uh, throughout the United States taking on a more activist role in regard to challenging laws or uh, helping legislators defend laws that might uh, not pass constitutional muster. And that seems to be at the heart of the conflict between uh, candidate Labrador and Wasden and McComber. Uh, you know, how um, eager are you to defend the legislature's laws that, that may not pass constitutional muster? Uh, or do you take the more, I think Wasden has the more traditional approach of, I just look at the Constitution and evaluate it that way. It was a very interesting debate on, on Tuesday night. What were your some takeaways? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the, the approach that they would take to the office, whether it would be, you know, Wazen's more like I'm using the Constitution to evaluate, you know, you know, to lead the office versus I'm going to be more politically active was very interesting. But as well, like Wazen was mentioning things like the size of the office, managing the office, which is some interesting things to think about because these for these statewide positions, managing large offices is actually kind of an important part of the, the job that doesn't really get talked about very much. That's right. There's a deputy AG in, in every agency, pretty much. And so you do have quite a number of those attorneys that work under your direction. And there's an interesting, um, the candidates in the race, I feel like, demonstrate kind of an interesting stripes of the party. We've got Attorney General Wasden, who's kind of the old guard Republican. He's been sort of the establishment candidate. And then you've got Raul Labrador, who for a long time was one of those insurgent Tea Party folks, mm -hmm. um, but now has some experience. He's been in party leadership at the state level. He was in Congress for eight years. Um, and then you've got Mr. McComber, who's completely new and running sort of as that outsider candidate. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that is a reflection of, of at least three of the streams running through the Republican Party right now. Jackie can probably speak better to that. Well, I do think that it's an interesting look at into both kind of the ideological positions, the issues of key, you know, their top of their their agenda, as well as like approaches to to campaigning, mm -hmm. um, where we see like McMurr and, and similar candidates taking more grassroots type of mm -hmm. outsider type candidacy. Um, and the, a lot more active online. 
been on the internet too. Very true, yeah. And and um, Wazden has support of some of the more establishment, but Labrador also getting a lot of support, but including from some of the the you know kind of farther right Republican entities as well. So it'll be really interesting on um, how in, in a th three way race how those kind of differences play a role in voter um, uh, support. Mm -hmm. And it's not the only three way three way race this year. We've got a couple of pri uh, primary debates coming up next week for superintendent of public schools on Monday and then Secretary of State on Tuesday. Is there anything interesting in the superintendent's debate you have your eye on? Well, I think it's it's this is another race where maybe often doesn't get a ton of attention, but given the presence and the salience of education issues um, across the country, but particularly in Idaho, I think there is a lot of interest in this race. And we've got three candidates who are, you know, like with the incumbent Yerbara, but we've got Critchfield and, Dur and Durst who are also focusing on some of the kind of major education issues that have been coming up lately. And so I think it'll be interesting to see what issues they're really focusing on in the debate and throughout the rest of their campaigns. Mm -hmm. And how much focus do you think there will be on kind of the traditional Idaho metrics we've been talking about, whether it's a go on rate or um, enrollment levels versus these sort of nationalized issues like your critical race theory or other such things? Well, so far, we're hearing a lot more about these hot button issues that are playing nationally, uh, whether or not Critical race theory is, you know, endemic in our schools, and if so, how to root it out. Uh, the debates that continue about the Common Core, and how to assess the um, educational goals and and objectives in K through 12. I think we'll. That's what I'm seeing most about. You know, when I look at the materials from the three, um, I I don't know if that's what the Idaho voting public in general is most concerned about. I think there is a definitely a part of the Republican base that is really concerned about critical race theory. I don't know how broadly that's held. And then similar talking about sort of these nationalized issues making a foothold into Idaho politics, we also have the Secretary of State's race where a lot of, uh, a lot of conversation has been around uh, the 2020 election and uh, election security. For sure. I mean, this continues to be a, a big point of discussion um, in legislatures and, and similar sort of secretary of states or other election official races and campaigns since 2020 is about election security, whether or not there's presence of election fraud, which in general, there does not appear to be very much fraud, but it continues to be a big issue that's really been focused on. And we're seeing that come out in this race some as well among some of the candidates. Mm -hmm. It seems like for uh, Dorothy Moon and Mary Souza, the concern is is about there is fraud and we need to get rid of it. Whereas uh, McGrain's messaging seems to be, I'm all about election security, but he's not claiming that there was a lot of voter fraud in previous elections, which makes sense. He was in charge of administering elections in Ada County. Ada County, which is home to a, a quarter of the state's population already. That's right. Um, there are a number of races that we don't have debates scheduled for as well. There's Congressional District 2 with uh, Congressman Simpson and his challenger Brian Smith. There's the Lieutenant Governor and the Governor's races. Why would, a, whether an incumbent or a challenger, why would a candidate decide not to debate? What sort of advantage do you think they're seeing from that choice this year? Yeah, there can be a few different kind of motivations that may go into candidates withdrawing from a debate. If you're the incumbent, it could, you know, there's, 
you you may have more to lose there if you do debate in terms of getting caught up and saying something that perhaps you didn't mean to say or just having to discuss issues that you don't think that should be debated and as the incumbent you already have you may already have name recognition right so you don't really need the time with voters to share what your issues are you already have have that experience you probably you may have more resources to campaign those types of things and so i think where the the issue can be is for challengers who aren't getting the sim, you know, getting that time mm -hmm. to speak with voters. Mm -hmm. And this is, of course, the first stage in the election cycle. This is only the primary where the parties are nominating their candidates. Um, but Stephanie, you looked into some numbers, and there are a number of instances in Idaho where the primary election is the only one that matters. Yes, I know people have um, a variety of opinions about that, but. The last time the Democrats succeeded in electing a statewide officer was uh, Marilyn Howard, who was the superintendent of public instruction, whose term ended in 2007. So it's been many years since the Democrats have won one of those races. Now, given that, it, it does seem to be true that if you want to be part of picking who's going to win, <laughs> then you need to vote in the Republican primary, because that's where the uh, most likely winners in those statewide races are gonna happen. And uh, it is, by the way, the superintendent of public instruction's office where the Democrats tend to get the most votes. Uh, they come closest. Usually, well, in several of the last electoral cycles, they've been within, 50, they've had 49% of the vote in that race. So they've been pretty close, but they don't win. So if you're not gonna have a Democrat win in November, then you better like who's on, who's going to win the primary in the Republican primary. So I do think that's where uh, the action is. And um, we also looked, by the way, at, at the number of people who were filing for office. And, and there are 105 seats in the legislature total, and 59 of them have no Democrats running at all. So the pr primary is, in the Republican primary is the only election in that, in those cases. And there has been some discussion in political circles of whether Democrats should stick to their guns and nominate good candidates, whether they should cross over and affiliate with the Republican Party to vote in that primary. Jacqueline, you've looked at some numbers. What have you found as far as party affiliation? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's, I think that is a major challenge, right? For the minority party in a supermajority state, like how do you grow? How do you grow? How do you recruit candidates? How do you grow your voter base? Um, and this year in particular, there have been some encouragement of registered Democrats or unaffiliated voters to register as a Republican. And there does seem to be some movement, not huge, huge numbers, huge, huge changes in number. Um, but I was looking back at the 2018 primary, and since then the Republican Party has gained over 100,000 registered voters. And so when we're looking at that growth in the, in the Republican Party since 2018, there's definitely the potential for some shifts, um, and that will be really interesting to watch mm -hmm. this time around. And 2018 was the last um, governor primary, right? So those will be the numbers to compare. Right, exactly, yeah. Those would be the primaries where you tend to get higher, higher turnout because you've got competitive uh, primary mm -hmm. races. Mm -hmm. And then we have just about a minute left in the show. I do also want to get to um, the legislature, not just the statewide races. We've had a redistricting cycle. We've had a lot of announcements. Um, Stephanie, what do you expect is going to be the, the impact to the legislature this cycle? I expect to see uh, higher than usual turnover. Um, and I know Jackie has better information on this, but generally we'll see 
more incumbents having to run against incumbents as the new districts are created. Um, and a few cases where the district is brand new and no, but no incumbent lives there. Is yeah, that's right. we've got at least four races with incumbents running against each other. We've got several open races. And so um, while we may not, you know, it's, while we're, we may be lacking Democrats in some races, we're still gonna see a sizable turnover, even just from the Republican primaries. All right, we were going to have to leave it there. As a reminder to our viewers, in order to vote in the Republican primary, you must be affiliated affiliated as a Republican voter. The winners of all primary races will appear on the general election ballot in November. And if you haven't registered to vote yet, you can do that in person at the polls. For more information, visit voteidaho.gov. And thanks for watching. We'll see you next week. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.